You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Pete Enns received his Ph.D. from Harvard in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and his MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary. He completed his undergraduate degree at Messiah College in Behavioral Science. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the Institute for Biblical Research. He is currently the Abram S. Clemens Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University. Prior to that, he was Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Hermeneutics at Westminster Theological Seminary. Pete is the author of several books, most recently his book Curveball, in which he narrates his circuitous faith journey. Curveball is an apt name for his memoir, in which we see how the world lost a potentially great Major League Baseball pitcher, but gained a prominent biblical scholar. In Curveball, Pete recounts his journey from an overly simplistic evangelicalism towards a much more nuanced approach to Christian faith, which anticipates curveballs and doesn't back off the plate when they come his way. Pete Enns has also navigated the sometimes contentious academic world, which exists at the intersection of traditional beliefs about the Bible and what happens when the Bible is exposed to historical and logical scrutiny. You might say he's even been hit by a few pitches pretty hard along the way, but gotten back up, dusted himself off, and kept playing the game. If you think a biblical scholar like Pete is necessarily a bit stuffy and pretentious, well, Pete is definitely not that. His tongue-in-cheek style is well on display with his hugely popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, which he co-hosts with Jared Bias, which they very humbly and enthusiastically dub the only God-ordained podcast on the Internet. I tell people that if you want to know how challenging and frustrating and inspiring and surprising the seminary experience was like for me, Listen to the Bible for normal people, and it will give you a pretty good idea of it. I've asked Pete to join us today to discuss his latest book, Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, or How I Stumbled and Tripped My Way to Finding a Bigger God. Baseball may have lost a great pitcher, but the world has gained a great biblical scholar, and so today we are pleased to invite Pete Enns to loosen up his arm, step to the mound, and show us some of his best stuff. Welcome, Pete Enns, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. That's a, that's a nice introduction there. I should, uh, I don't know, market that or something. So, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think what the world lost is a potentially half-decent pitcher. I wouldn't say, a, you know, a great one, but and probably the same about biblical scholarship. Half-decent. <laughs> I'll do. I'll do in a pinch. But Well, in the book, you tell us that as your spiritual journey kept deepening and broadening over time, you came to see God's boundless capacity for redemption. In chapter 11, entitled Thin Places, you really start laying out your ultimate convictions writing. Are we all the same? Does God have us all in the grip of divine love? I am happy to report that I am not the first Christian on earth to have these thoughts. God's ultimate eternal embrace of all people is a very ancient view in the Christian church and has had its advocates throughout church history. It is well documented in the early centuries of Christianity and such theologians as Clement, Origen, Maximus the Confessor, and Gregory of Nyssa, among others. But this does not mean God turns God's back on evil and injustice. Origen, in the third century, for example, does not deny God's judgment, even a fiery one. But that judgment destroys sin and evil, not the individual. So, Pete, could you expand on why you think figures such as Clement, Origen, Maximus the Confessor, and Gregory of Nyssa, among others, concluded that God's ultimate purposes in creation included the final salvation of all people? Well, I, you know... From what I understand of these wonderful figures, it's it was really sort of philosophical, even I would say logical conclusions to draw from that the God of the universe, as they understood it at the time, it just doesn't make sense for this God to be, let's say, vindictive or need his pound of flesh. And I have to say that I agree with that. It, it doesn't make sense to me. But then you turn to the biblical stories that where God does do things, you know, quite often, in fact, that have been morally uh, problematic for readers of Scripture for a very long time. 
And it's it's relatively easy for me to explain those things, not to explain them away, but just to understand them in a particular historical context where they thought about God differently. And you see the the uh, even within the Bible itself, within the Hebrew Bible, and then within the Christian Bible, discussions about God and how even those discussions within Scripture were moving; they weren't just stable and. I think for me, it's it's a matter of continuing that kind of trajectory and trying to think of what I believe God is actually like. And of course, we have, as I talk about in the book, you know, things like the cosmos to deal with that um, ancient people didn't, not in the same way that we do. And that has very much affected my thinking of whether God is up there and out there sort of looking down and wanting to give people the punishment they deserve, but is turned aside because, you know, maybe Jesus convinced him not to do it or something like that. I mean, that's one popular way of thinking about this. But so, yeah, I, I think they're, they probably were just thinking the way many people have thought that it simply doesn't sit as true for them, that this is the kind of thing that God would do. Well, I thought that it kind of might have had to do something with him reading the New Testament in the original Greek. And so and so seeing possibilities in the language that was there for them in ways that it's hard for us to see right now because we weren't speaking that language and living that culture, as well as their understanding that uh, their way of seeing Jesus' mission as an ultimate victory over humanity's bondage to sin, death, and evil. So mm -hmm. for them, it was a question. They saw Jesus as victor. And it, then it raised the question, well, how complete would that victory be? And then they're reading it in the original Greek, too. And they're not, they're not limited in their understanding by what would develop in later church dogma. And so they were just freer to think about the, the, that this victory might actually be ultimately perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I do think there's something to that, that we will tend to look at the past 2,000 years of church history. And when we see terms in the Bible, you know, that we might look at them with respect to how we think about them with a couple thousand years of church thinking. But that might not have been the case. And, you know, one thing that always strikes me is how, you know, I mean, David Bentley Hart refers to the New Testament as basically Jewish apocalypticism. It's, it's a Jewish text that's dealing with the end of things as we know it. And I think one thing that colors for me, and I think positively colors for me, the New Testament message is how the, uh, the, the, the imminent end, whatever that looks like, it, well, it's imminent. It's, 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 it's about to happen. It's, it's going to happen real soon. And that's why Paul has to explain himself in First Thessalonians, people saying, hey, listen, my mom died. And and she wasn't here to see it. So what's going to happen to her? Well, don't worry, she'll be raised, and you know we'll all meet Jesus in the in the skies and then come back down again. Um, he had to explain the delay of all this stuff. So the mindset was very much on something that's happening really soon. Jesus is raised, okay, but that's just the first stage. The second stage is coming, and it's coming soon. So be ready, right? Mm -hmm. So trim your lamps, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And, and it helped me when I understood that the, the term, they're talking about the end of the aeon, and, right. and that, that often gets interpreted world. Um, but when I began to, like Paul in Ephesians 2, 7 talks about you know, the coming ages, not mm -hmm. just a single age, and the idea that origin had that, well, there would be a, a, a number of ages, and at the end of those ages, God would be all in all. However, that all worked out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then and then there wouldn't be any ages anymore, and we would all be in God. And so there, right. the way they even thought about time and the language that they used for it is very foreign to us. Yeah, and, and we do tend to interpret some of these words or translate them in ways that make sense to us, but, you know, what what is the ion? Or the Ionian, right. you know, is it is it something that's eternal, or is it another age to come? Right, right. and and that's that. There's a, that's a different thing, and I think the age that they were looking for was the age of messianic rule mm -hmm. in Jerusalem, 
where the true king is taking his rightly place and um and that's the beginning of something big. This is when the nations will stream to Jerusalem, you know, and everything will be reconciled under God in Christ. But the big problem is that that didn't happen. You know, that's that that's something that theologians pretty quickly had to start thinking about, you know, as early as the second century that, okay, it looks like we're going to be here for a while. And now what do we do? How do we understand these things? And so you take these these statements in the Bible like ion, you know, that Greek word, right? Mm -hmm. You take a, a word like that, which meant something in a first century context, in a Jewish apocalyptic context, but now you have to sort of translate it. I'm using mm -hmm. scare quotes here. You have to translate it into the language of a people that is largely not Jewish mm -hmm. and not thinking in apocalyptic terms, but thinking more in terms of the establishing the way forward. How, how do we move forward from this? And I think that results in – I want to put this positively because Christians do this all the time anyway, and so do Jews. But adapting the language and now using it in ways that probably the writers didn't intend for it to be used. Which well, is to me thrilling, and it's also it makes all this so interesting to talk about because it's like it's you know there are a lot of moving pieces here with this stuff, mm -hmm. and it's it's more than just going to a Bible verse and thinking we know what a word or a phrase means and then running with it. It's it's understanding something of the history of it as well. Now, were you surprised having grown up evangelical when you discovered that early Christianity had more hopeful theologies, which even included a fairly prominent expression of a universal reconciliation? Um, I don't, I, that's a good question. I'm not sure how surprised I was. I mean, I was surprised in the sense of like, oh, well, that's interesting, but not really shocked because I wasn't raised, um, I wasn't raised fundamentalist or evangelical. You know, my parents were German immigrants and we didn't really discuss theology or, you know, they wouldn't have known what inerrancy or orthodoxy even means. They're just, you know, Germans with a, um, with more of a cultural understanding of the nature of Christianity, although they, they definitely had personal faith. So for me, I, I can't relate to some of my people who listen to, you know, my words or read my books where they're like, trauma was involved and, you know, new ways of thinking helps them move beyond the trauma, right? I didn't have that trauma. And I'm very glad for that, that I don't have some of that same baggage that, that many people have to think through. So, so for me, it's, it's more an exercise in curiosity and trying to engage the biblical story, trying to understand it contextually as best as I can, and then bringing that to conversation with, you know, really the history of thought. I mean, it's it's hard mm -hmm. to put it another way, but the history of Christian thought, as best as I can muster, and I need a lot of help with that because it's, it's a big topic, but then also with my own existence and my own moment in time. And I find that to be the very stuff of the life of faith. I find that to be the very stuff of Christian theology. This is This is what it is. This is how it moves. Well, in the next section in your book, you reference some uh, modern writers stating that God's ultimate, quote, goal is refinement and redemption, not punishment. And a number of authors in recent years have been instrumental in making modern readers aware of this ancient view, including Hans Urs von Balthasar, David Bentley Hart, Robin Perry, and Brad Jerzak. These authors are just a small representation of the careful thought that has been given to the topic before us. Reading them is food for thought, to be sure. Uh, so with the exception of Balthazar, who died in 1988, the other authors that you mentioned have all appeared on the Bible for Normal People podcast and the Grace Saves All podcast. So these scholars are important for both of us. What do you see as the main contribution of scholars such as Von Balthazar, David Bentley Hart, Robin Perry, and Brad Jerzak? I think it's bringing the contemporary church into conversation with the history of Christian thought. So that when people say, you know, <clears throat> like a Brad Jerzak, who's a friend of mine, he uses language like he's an ultimate, he's a, um, 
hopeful Christian ultimate redemptionist or some such language. Right. Like that. Yeah. He's, ultimate. Yeah. Ultimate. <clears throat> he, he sort of likes to avoid that the term universalism. Right. Because of some baggage, so he really likes the term ultimate redemption. Yeah, it's a Christian thing. It's a Jesus thing, but it's for everybody. And and he's and, and that brings him hope, and he hopes that he's right, and all that kind of stuff, right? And I, I resonate very much with that kind of language. And in doing that, it brings us into conversation with with um, voices from the Christian past that don't always get the airtime that they probably deserve because there are dominant theological paradigms. Big words there, right? There are dominant theological paradigms in Western culture that have no room for that. And it's it's very much. I mean, part of it is influenced by by some iterations of Calvinism, where God's just mad at you by birth. You deserve eternal conscious torment mm-hmm. because you were born, right? But thankfully, Jesus swooped in and changed it all. And now you've got Jesus sort of convincing God not to do what God really wants to do, right? And this is insanely problematic for understanding the Bible, because I think, you know, one thing, Jesus and God are on the same page. The Father and the Son are on the same page in the, in the New Testament. So it's it's more like a group effort, right? And what is it good for? Well, the language of the New Testament, it sort of creeps into like what we would call universalism today, that Jesus is all in all, and every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Right. That's that's the ultimate goal, I think, and that goes for everybody. And it doesn't mean that God will turn God's eye away from injustice. I think those things will be handled. However, in the divine wisdom, those things will be handled. Some things I wish would be sooner rather than later. But um, in the meantime, here we are, the body of Christ, trying to bring justice and love and peace and non-polemics to a culture that doesn't always have those things. Yeah. Now, of that of that group that I mentioned, David Bentley Hart has made the most pointed case about the salvation of all, insisting mm-hmm. that the final outcome of creation is nothing less than the final revelation of the moral character of God. For if God knows the end from the beginning, then all moral consequence, whether directly or indirectly, find their ultimate source in God, who is the first cause of all that is. I find David Bentley Hart's logic hard to evade, when he connects the moral character of God directly to the salvation of all, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the more sort of direct well, me conclusions yeah. that uh, David Bentley Hart reaches. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, swayed by that as well. I mean, others have made those kinds of arguments, but David does it in a very pointed way, as you say, which I appreciate. And I see because that is the problem. I mean, that was the problem with Origen back in the third century. He says, there's no way <laughs> the God of the cosmos would say, kill those people and take their land. I mean, what kind of a moral monster are we dealing with here? And and I find, you know, Hart and Jerzak and others, their, their way of handling that stuff, being in conversation with the past, as being much more persuasive than some strands of evangelical apologetics that tries to make it seem like, well, it's not that bad. You know, well, those right. people, we're all going to hell anyway, so those people are just getting early what they deserve, and which which doesn't solve the moral dilemma. It actually exacerbates it. It makes it worse. Well, work. yeah, with the help of those scholars, <laughs> I have learned to read those problematic texts with the early church fathers mm-hmm. and to look at them and ask the kinds of questions that they did. Exactly right. With the freedom that they had, you know, before some of the councils went down, you know, not that the councils were necessarily bad or anything like that, but it's before some of the tightening of the reins uh, started happening. And certainly before, you know, the, the late medieval period and the Reformation period where things took a different kind of turn toward what eventually would become biblicism and, and, and certain Protestant notions of inerrancy. Those are much later developments. And they were not burdened by that. I, I think, for me, the early church and much of the history of Christianity, I mean, and this goes into the medieval period where they had multiple senses of Scripture. There's not just one way of looking at it. There are multiple ways of looking at it. This is very much in tune with the history of Judaism as well, which understood Scripture as being, in a sense, both foundational to their identity, but also that thing by which 
we can commune with God through dialogue, sometimes debate and interrogation. And to me, that's a very healthy way of respecting the Bible, but not making it out to be, you know, the metaphor I use a lot is the rule book or, or the owner's manual or a cookbook or a field guide to faith or things like that. The Bible is much more complex than that, and, and it doesn't work well that way. And it's actually that mentality is what causes a lot of the theological strife that people feel. Well, in your book, after mentioning Vaughn Balthazar, David Bentley Hart, Robin Perry, and Brad Jerzak, you bring up the wideness of C.S. Lewis's position he outlined in his book, The Last Battle, exemplified by the story of a soldier named Emmeth, who is ultimately forgiven, even though he'd been fighting on the wrong side, because Aslan counts all true service to him, even when people don't know it. And then you give this summary, quote, all these views together are, are often called Christian universalism. God is about the business of drawing to God's self all of the fractured and wounded humanity through the mystery of Christ incarnated, crucified, and raised. God will bring this about because God's love is, re is relentless. Moreover, because God love, God's love is relentless, redemption does not stop at death. Like I said above, none of this means that God does not judge evil, but God's judgment is redemptive, not punitive, because God's love never quits. Of course, I do not claim to know the mechanics of it all, and I certainly can't prove any of this. Living with ambiguity and uncertainty is the cost of religious faith. But this is the picture of God that makes the most sense to me here and now. So could you say a bit more about Christian universalism and what it means to you as a theological perspective? Um, yeah, I could say a lot about it. It depends on how much time I have. Um, yeah, well, pretty much what I just said there is, is where I am. I'm just, I'm not... I don't know. I really don't. And I'm fine not knowing, but I I will say this is what makes the most sense to me. And I'm hardly alone in making that confession. And I, I want to maintain a, a distinctive element to the Christian faith. I think all religions have a distinctive element, not just Christianity, but I want to maintain those distinctivenesses, which, is, which are all centered on Jesus, who Jesus is, what he did, why he did what he did. And crucifixion, resurrection, all that stuff, right? I want to maintain that, but I want it to be good news for everyone. And it's not just, you know, the, the people out there who aren't Christian, some people are hostile to Christianity, right? Some have very good reason for being hostile towards Christianity, right? right. Because the gospel is not Christianity, the good news is not the church. It's not what the American church does or what churches in other parts of the world do. That's not the gospel. It's not the good news. They're custodians of the kingdom of God. They're custodians of, of the presence of God on this earth. And we oftentimes screw that up pretty badly, and people are burned by that. They're traumatized by that. I don't blame them for walking away entirely, but I think that takes a lot of integrity for some people to do that. Right. It takes a lot of it takes guts to do that, and I I would like to think that that God would be looking at this and not saying, God, you were so close, you should have just hung in a little bit longer and just gone along with it. I I, I believe God is saying more like, I'm with you every step of the way. Your integrity and authenticity are valuable to me, and. I'm not going to hold it against you because you're being honest about your experience. And to think that God is in the midst even of those kinds of passages that people have to have to traverse. Um, in that sense, it's like it, it, it makes sense to me. And it's not, you know, as some people say, and you, you maybe have heard this too, David, um, oh, you're just picking and choosing what you want to believe. You don't want to believe in the bad stuff. You just believe in the good stuff. That's grossly inaccurate for what I and others are doing. We're trying to understand the meaning of those bad parts and how they fit into the larger scheme of things. And that's called engaging the text and not just proof texting the text. And again, it's it's it, this is always in the realm of theology or philosophy or hermeneutics. It's not in the realm of finding verses that seem to say something in your English Bibles without context and then just drawing vast conclusions that are actually very harmful to people. Yeah. Well, I guess you could call Christian universalism a theological curveball. I didn't see it coming until a church member asked me to investigate it. I thought I was pretty happy with my, with my point of view that God would save everybody that was savable. 
that maybe there were some people that just weren't savable. And so at around age 50, uh, I reinvestigated all of these things and uh, came to see it in a, in a different, in a different light. And so mm -hmm. I was just wondering when it was that, that you came to see this maybe in a different light or it became more persuasive for you. Yeah. I mean, I can pinpoint a couple of things and, and basically they're experiences that I had. It's not just, I read something in a book. It's just my own life. And one of which was, you know, I tell this story in at least one of the books is uh, my experiences at Harvard. And and the fact that it's Harvard is irrelevant. It's a large research institution from people all over the world. And I met people who were wonderful. They were good people. Well, there's nobody good. Yeah, no, they're good people. They, they, they mean no harm to anyone. We all have our problems. We all have our dysfunctions. But and they didn't believe anything like what I believe. You know, I had Jewish professors uh, to whom I owe a lot in terms of how I think about things. And that was a precious gift to me. And I simply, I came to a point fairly quickly on that, I, you know, this either or thing, you know, this, there are two kinds of people and the people who say the right words and who say they believe the right things, they're fine. And other people who don't have, quote, the truth, they're, you know, objects of God's wrath. And it, it just existentially stopped making sense to me. I looked at this and I said, I can't, I can't imagine this. Another incident was, was years after that was, and I tell this story in Curveball, of sitting in a taxi in traffic and I can't move. Mm -hmm. And I'm just inundated by the mass of humanity that's out there. And I thought to myself, how many of those people think about God the way that I do? And I'd say, precious few. Precious few. And well, what does God think about them? And the whole idea of these people who are, whoever they are, are really for the most part just trying to live their lives and maybe even on autopilot and they're hurting and this and that. And I can't imagine that the God of the infinite multiverse doesn't have some compassion on these mm -hmm. puny people who live here and, and not only wants the best for them, but will make it happen ultimately. Right. Well, for me, uh, eschatology is crucial to my theology because I see it, um, as I see it, the culmination of God's ultimate purposes in creation is also the revelation of the moral character of God. So as I put it together, if all are not saved, then God is not all good since any tragic remainder in creation would inevitably subtract from the perfect goodness of God. And if God knows the end from the beginning, as we find, for example, in Isaiah uh, 46.10, and is finally sovereign over all human destiny, then it follows in the words of Julian of Norwich that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So I was heartened by the section of your book where you referenced one of my theological heroes, Jürgen Moltmann. There you wrote, some Christian theologians such as Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and Jürgen Moltmann want to remind us that God's location, if I can put it that way, is ahead of us, drawing us ahead rather than drawing us back. The Christian faith is, to use the fancy word, eschatological. So could you tell us a little bit about Jürgen Moltmann and about how you understand the eschatological orientation of theology? Yeah, I mean, that's, I was really swayed by that over the years, thinking of, you know, the preoccupation that some Christians have with always looking back and saying, we have to go back to the original. We have to be lined up with the words here, whether it's the Bible or a confession of faith or some earlier stage in church history. And it, what if God is ahead of us? <laughs> well, for, you know, present, past, whatever, but what if God's orientation is to move the entire cosmos to a telos, as the Greek word is, to its, to its completion, to its, let's say, perfection? And that makes that sways me to think well what would that look like and i know some of my brothers and sisters of a different iteration of christianity will say well part of god's perfect completion is perfect sovereign judgment on those who deserve it and i say i don't i don't agree with that i mean i i know why you're saying it because you're trying to t take these threads from scripture and still make them applicable and i would rather say that the biblical story doesn't 
really address things in the way that we're thinking of them today with 2000 years of hindsight. And, you know, science for me is a big deal. I mean, half my book is a curveball is about science, right? And, mm-hmm. and how it gives us a picture of the cosmos where I had to ask myself the question, well, where does God fit into this? Where, where does the God of Christianity fit into this? And I found myself suddenly being in conversation with people who years ago I would have said I'd never I'm going to be in conversation with process theologians, for example, and and others who are actually trying to talk about God in ways that make sense in the world of quantum physics or a, a functionally infinite universe uh, that we're just starting to get to know. Even though we've gone back 13.8 billion years, it's much further thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. We know it's it's bigger and older than even that, and that. Those kinds of things make me think of, okay, this cosmos is not just a haphazard backdrop for the drama of the Israelites and the early Mm -hmm. times. It has to be much, much more than that. There are other civilizations, I'm convinced, out there because statistically it makes no sense to say we're the only creatures that exist in the entire cosmos. And all of that brings me into conversation with people like Moltmann, right, or Tehar de Chardin, that there is a telos, there's a goal to this, and it's moving somewhere. And we're now at a point where life on this planet has developed to the point where we're even conscious of that. We're conscious even of that discussion, which is something that people probably 10, 20, 30,000 years ago were not thinking about. They were trying to survive. We're becoming conscious. People even say our consciousness is part of the universe becoming conscious of itself, whatever that means, right? But it's like it's a big deal. Something's happening here. And we have, I think, a holy responsibility living in the age that we live in to bring this tradition that we respect into conversation with the nature of reality as we understand it today. And that impels me forward, not backward. Well, there there might be uh, more Christians who would be open to this way of thinking about an ultimate universal reconciliation as part of the ultimate purposes of God. But uh, when they read the Bible, they find uh, some passages that seem to mitigate against this. Uh, just a couple of them. Hebrews 6, um, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those have, who have once been enlightened. First um, Peter uh, chapter 4 uh time for judgment to begin in God's household if it begins with us what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God and it is if if it is hard for the righteous to be saved then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner so how do you work through passages which seem to mitigate against the ultimate salvation of all into your theology well i mean part of it is my understanding of just the nature of scripture which is not again a verse gives you ultimate truth that never bends or never changes. I mean, in the book of Hebrews, for example, I mean, people have described Hebrews as engaging in the rhetoric of warning, right? When you're, when, when you're in a warning moment, you will say things that are very stark and black and white. And the warning is the time is short, right? So it's... Um, and it's like telling a child, you know, who just got a driver's license, something like, um, you know, if if choose how you're going to drive. If you drive this way, you're going to be killed. If you drive this other way, you won't be killed, right? Mm-hmm. Well, driving is much more nuanced in those two options, but in that moment, that's what the parent needs to say. Yeah, there's and sort the, of a there's sort of a rhetoric that gets going in the Bible sometime about warning. There, there seems to be okay. You have if you fail, then this is it, and then mm-hmm. they fail. Well, it turns out ultimately it's not it. I mean, something terrible a, has happened. It's a something other, yeah, right. Yeah, but there is a restoration on the other side of it. But the warning preceding it makes it mm-hmm. seem like that might not even be there. And those warnings, though, they they perform a function. I don't look at that and say, "Boy, what an idiot!" I say, "What's going on in that context for this author to say the things that he's saying?" And that's a different approach to scripture than, well, it says this in this verse, so any notion of anything other different, other than what Hebrews 6 says, 
is off the table because we have a Bible verse here. And of course, the problem with that is that there are other Bible verses that say different things. Right. That's the that's the problem of problem scriptures. And my from my perspective, once you start looking at grace, all theological systems start facing these problem passages. So if you take the Arminian approach in arguing that grace goes to all but does not actually save and proposes that God wants to save all but will not be able to, well, then you have to contend with scriptures which suggest that God being sovereign should be able to achieve God's will. Right. If you take the Calvinist approach in arguing that grace actually saves but does does not go to all, and, and which proposes that God saves everyone God, says, God wants to save but does not want to save all, well, then you have to contend with scriptures which suggest that God does, in fact, desire the salvation of all. And in the Christian universalist approach in arguing that grace actually saves and actually goes to all, well, this proposes a God who wants to and is able to save all. Well, then you must contend with scriptures which seem to suggest some will be eternally lost. Mm-hmm. So since all theologies and all pictures of grace end up facing passages of scripture, which will be hard to deal with, the question is not if we will encounter difficult passages of scriptures, but how we will deal with them. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, I wish that, I think if we accepted that dilemma, we'd be better off. I mean, theologically, because we, we, we realize that when we don't have all the answers to all these questions that we necessarily want, but there are ways of thinking through this by having a more realistic view of, of scripture. And actually, frankly, I think, you know, asking the big question here is, what do you think God is like? And Or another way of putting it is, what is God's relation to the world? Is it one fundamentally of animosity that has to be assaged? Is, it, is this a deity that has to be calmed down? And is this a deity who needs this pound of flesh? I can understand why in the biblical story, God will be spoken of that way in places, not everywhere, but in places, because we project our own structures onto the divine realm. And Yahweh acts like a warrior deity, like a warrior king, like other nations around them had, uh, around the Israelites had at the time. And we have to ask ourselves, is that, how, what do you think about that model of God? Just, just putting your church connections away, no one's listening to you, no one's going to judge you for what you think. Do you think this is what God is actually like? But the Bible says, okay, I'm not asking you what the Bible says, I'm asking what do you think? Do you really think this describes the God of the cosmos? And that's really the big existential moment that I had, is I, I came to a point where I said, I can't accept this. Just philosophically, experientially, it just it makes no sense to me. And then the response is, of course, as you know, David, um, well, you have to decide whether you're going to obey Scripture or not. And my counter response to that is, you're making Scripture out as a thing, like almost like a sovereign Lord that has to be obeyed, rather than ancient writings that have to be engaged. And part of our tradition is engaging those writings. And taking them seriously and seeing, you know, what is binding, what isn't binding? Th- those are all the questions people have had since forever. But this is a big one. You know, what is God like? And as you mentioned before, and we, we discussed origin and others of antiquity, they were very much a part of that question. They were there. It's just I think we've lost that um, the sense of that responsibility for us to continue having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's helped me with regard to biblical interpretation is how I've started to see that Jesus is the Word of God and that the Scripture bears witness to Him. So mm-hmm. um, in some ways, it understanding Scripture helps me to be surprised about Jesus because I know that backdrop and I think, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, how did He, mm-hmm. how did He, how did He use Scripture? How, how did He pick and choose among the Scriptures that were available to Him? And and then seeing Jesus as sort of the final interpretive key that I use when I'm looking at Scripture, I try, put, try to put my Jesus glasses on mm-hmm. and see what kind of vision I get from that. I was wondering if you could say a little about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with that. Um, the okay, so the Bible, the Word, lowercase W, bears witness to Jesus, the Word. 
which is theologically really great. It's interesting. And I I try to understand not the Bible as much, but just the nature of God through the Jesus lens. I think that's what Christians do. Mm-hmm. The tricky part, and I think this is where people stumble, and understandably so, the tricky part is that the the word that bears witness to the word does so by means of ancient idioms and ancient conceptions, ones that we simply don't share for whatever reason. Some things we do, some things we don't, right? That's the tricky part. How do we, if I can use the word, how do we translate that into an idiom that we understand? And this has been the task of theology since the very beginning including Jewish theology. How do, we, how do we bring this tradition along with us and be in conversation with this tradition? And I think for the most part, the Christian church has, has tried to do that. I think Judaism, for the most part, has tried to do that. It's just certain iterations of Christianity that wants to sort of leapfrog back to the first century, read the text in their translation, think that because this is the Word of God— this is going to speak directly and plainly and immediately into our situation rather than, no, this is the beginning of theological work to see how this tradition connects. I think that's the big stumbling block for people. It's, it's the antiquity of the Bible that can cause major stumbling blocks for people and can be easily mishandled, but that I think is important. It's an important part of the conversation for us to understand how do you see God today? As a person of Christian faith, how do you understand what God is doing in the world today? Well, um, the our, our, our way of looking at the Bible in the Western world, um, ultimately the lens of theology that we sort of inherited was under the sway of Augustine, who understood that humans are born bearing the guilt of Adam and Eve's original sin, bequeathed to them at birth. And at least according to those like Jonathan Edwards, the sin inheritance renders all persons at birth as loathsome insects in the sight of God until they are washed in baptism and ultimately redeemed through, through faith in Christ before they die. Yet in your book, you write, God in Christ is the healer, and that involves a process of dying uh, of the self as Jesus taught. What that means precisely is we take our laps around the sun is something I am happy to continue fleshing out in the few laps I have left. My point, though, is that a model of faith marked by curiosity and the conviction that the Creator is not out to get us has changed my life. I am not losing sleep over whether or not my children are saved in a conventional evangelical sense. Instead, I try my hardest to be to them the loving, caring, and healing presence God has modeled for me. I am grateful that my thinking has changed. I would hate to think of passing my years in conflict with my own flesh and blood fueled by fear and crisis thinking. So could you expand on this confidence you have in the ultimate worth and security of all persons in Christ in light of the Western Christian historical emphasis on original sin and the consequence of eternal torment for all who die outside of Christ? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, the, the the reality of sin is something the Bible takes for granted. Um, I think it's it's not just playing an academic game when I say it's well worth trying to understand what the Bible means by sin and the metaphors the Bible uses for sin. Sometimes it's a weight or a burden. Sometimes it's a stain. Sometimes it's an offense. I mean, it, it means different things. Um, but we, we again, we take that, and and we're very much influenced by the Protestant Reformation, by my Martin Luther specifically, who had uh, an introspective conscience, you know, and and turned all this stuff into his own existential moment, which can be beneficial, can be useful, but it becomes a whole theological system. Then I mean, I'm really simplifying, obviously, but it becomes a theological system in Protestantism where the main problem. Influenced by Augustine, as you properly put, the main problem is your birth and your objects of God's wrath, because no one can come to a connection with God without a verbal confession that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10, right? Which I understand, again, that's a contextual document. Again, like, who's he talking to? And would Paul be horrified that we're saying that people, and you know, um, 
someone living in northern Alaska, you know, who's isolated is going to hell because they didn't confess Jesus with their lips. Whereas Paul talking about a Greco-Roman world where this gospel message is spreading and people sort of know what's happening, you know. So um, I, I just I see the notion of okay. I've passed down things to my kids I wish I hadn't passed down. I didn't even know I was passing it down until they got older. And I could see, like, my goodness, they're me. I'm so sorry. You know? <laughs> right? <clears throat> so I, uh, this is not about human perfection or anything like that. But I think it's more a matter of psychological dysfunction and um, inherited trauma through DNA, which is a thing, right? And, and, and we are creatures in need of healing. I know I am every day. I'm not an object. The doctor's not out to get me, right? I think the doctor is a healing presence. And, you know, Thomas Keating, who uh, helped revive the contemplative tradition in Roman Catholic theology in the 1970s, he died a few years ago. Uh, but he refers to God as the divine therapist. Now, I can hear people rolling their eyes. I, I can't hear. I can see people in my mind's eye rolling their eyes. Mm-hmm. Thought. But the notion is that we are deeply, we're, we're crappy really inside. And it's not because we're born as bad people, but because we have inherited trauma and we go through life developing coping patterns, developed because we're raised by people who have their own problems that aren't even, they're not even aware of them. And to bring that to the surface, to bring true healing is an act of God. So he refers to God somewhat playfully as the divine therapist. That makes much more sense to me than, I, than the legal metaphor, which predominates in Protestant thinking, especially in Calvinism, that God is the judge at the bar and you are someone who has to give an, well, not at the bar. He's, he's sitting in the judge seat. We're, we're at the bar, right? I think that's the right. Idea. Right. So we, um, and we have to give an account for ourselves and we're guilty. We're guilty of transgressing the holy law of a holy God who cannot suffer anything other than pure perfection. Right. It doesn't take much to transfer that over to notions of human parenting to realize that's just messed up. I mean, if a parent acted like that, modeling their parenthood um, along the lines of what they think God is like, you're going to have, you're going to raise some pretty dysfunctional children who are going to pass that dysfunction on for generations and generations, right? So, so the idea of original sin is an Augustine idea. <clears throat> I'm going to say it's not biblical. It's certainly not in Genesis. It could it's also it's also based on a curious reading that he gave to Romans five twelve yeah, in the Latin five twelve b I think is what it is at the very end of it right <laughs> but, where he tied yeah. everything to Adam and not to our own actions because yeah. elsewhere Paul ties our own sin to what we do not what someone did and now we're guilty for it and that's the, see the, the the big problem for me I mean I, I I was able to articulate this years ago it's not just that we're born sinful. It's that we are born in a state of juridical guilt. We inherit the guilt of Adam, which I'm like, well, that just seems unfair. <laughs> it seems a little bizarre to me, but it's it's actually, it's really not a biblical idea. You can tease it out of, you can midrashically approach some passages of the Bible, right? And maybe put together something that looks like an argument for this. But then you just after you do all that machination, you just sort of step back and you say to yourself, have I just described God well? Or can I, in my mind's eye, see problems not with the Bible, but problems with how I put the Bible together, right? And that's the big issue for me, too, is that people will say, well, you're attacking the Bible. And I sort of say, quip, I quip back to them and say, no, I'm not attacking the Bible, I'm attacking you. Your problem is you don't know the difference between those two things, right? It's not the Bible. The Bible is a thing. It all depends on what sort of expectations we throw upon it, that it's got to act a certain way and it's giving us such and such information. Maybe the Bible is just not doing those kinds of things. Well, one of my most most basic convictions is that all human beings have an essential value. In Luke 15, the sheep, the coin, and the son were all lost, 
In the Greek, they were even described as being apolumai, which implies destruction. But lostness itself implies value because only that which belongs and is valued is considered lost. And even things that are in a state of apolumai can be described as destroyed or even dead. Yeah. Um, as in the, the, the prodigal son, the father said, my son is lost and found he was dead mm-hmm. and he's alive again. So there can, lostness doesn't imply lack of value. It implies that it implies value because only things that belong and have value can be lost. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that the, that's a good lesson for, let me put it this way. I, I love the parable of the lost son and I, it means a lot to me. I know Christians have understood that as something like a salvation kind of story, but I think we have to remember that the son, the, the so-called prodigal or wasteful son, who's really a lost son or even a dead son, as you put it. I mean, that, yeah. that's really the state that he's in. Um, he's an insider. I mean, the, the analogy today would be people in church who need to sort of go their own way and leave church and figure things out, and then they think they're going to come back. And this son in the story has this canned speech that he rehearses saying, oh, my father, I've sinned against you, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, but when he goes back to give the excuse, he can barely finish it before the father just interrupts him with you know, a show of emotion and love. And I'm so glad he runs out to meet the son. He doesn't wait for him to come back to give his speech to see whether the, the sovereign father will deem the son worthy of coming back into the family. He can't wait to have him come back. So maybe that's something what God's character is like, you know, within Judaism, right? I need to, I, I, I'm coming back. I'm not sure about it, but the father is, can't wait. Within Christianity, the same thing. I mean, people who are so-called deconstructing, you know, it's like, well, you're leaving the faith. Well, no, you might just be doing what the lost son did because for whatever reason, you had to do it, right? Now, the, the where the analogy breaks down is that the lost son was really a bit of a schmuck in this story, right? <laughs> right? And people who are deconstructing and not rebelling against God, they're actually coming to a point where they have a different kind of existential break with God than maybe that lost son did. But I think the principle is still very, very similar. Like, what if God is doesn't hate you? <laughs> what if mm-hmm. God actually, I mean, I tell my students at Easter, it's not just whether God loves you. It's like, what if God actually just likes you? You know, and and sees in you the full humanity, which is to be in the image of Christ. I think is to be fully, truly human. Right? What does that What does that look like for you? And what if God desires that for you? Right? To me, though, these are things worth talking about, and not some of the minutia that I think divides people and that makes God look to be something that's you know that people have recognized as deeply problematic morally philosophically theologically and hermeneutically about the ultimate purposes of god in creation you wrote in the book i believe that there must be some purposes in the cosmos even if i don't grasp it and that this purpose is guided by god who is love that god is love is a core conviction core christian conviction but the conviction has been amplified and made more real for me by a deeper understanding of the creation if a creator is responsible for all of this, I cannot see how this deity would have an eternal axe to grind. Rather, I believe divine love divides, delights in creation's goodness. And it tells of God's glory to echo Psalm 19 once again. And our human response is to be drawn to God through it. Love, I have come to believe, is God's core character trait. All other divine traits flow from love. It infuses the cosmos and will bring it to its full purpose. Those of us who get to circle the sun a few times are gifted to be a small part of that grand miracle. I was wondering if you could expand on this, especially with regard to the idea that love is not just one of God's attributes, but God's core character trait from which all other divine attributes flow. Well, I mean, I've come to believe that again for some of the same reasons we've been discussing, and it's to be contrasted with Again, you know, many Christians I know who say, well, God's core attribute is sovereignty. God is the sovereign ruler and can do as God pleases. So if God wants to say, throw people into hell for eternity, because God is doing it, God is God is always just and right. Therefore, that is a good and just and right act. Um, I see the love of God as something that really permeates the biblical story. I'm not saying it's everywhere, and it's it's not everywhere, but I think it's a theme that permeates the biblical story. And 
you know, I'm particularly moved by um, in First John four was it verse the teens, late teens, early twenties. But no one has ever seen God. But God is love, and if we love one another, then sort of God is in our midst. That's sort of the gist of what comes. Yeah, after and God that. being light and light in whom there is no darkness at all. Right now, again, some would say. And again, I disagree with this, that oh yeah, God is, there's no darkness, and for God to condemn people to hell forever is not darkness. It's light because God is doing it, right? Or God is love, but to be uh, vindictive towards people, to, to drown the world in a flood, for example, is, well, is a sign of, it's a sign of God's love. Yeah, that's the actual argument that's made. Well, that's the insidious thing about the Western Christian theological tradition, from, from my point of view, is that a massive amount of energy is spent um, <clears throat> trying to convince our plain moral intuition, mm-hmm. trying to convince us that our plain moral intuition is wrong, that that what we what we might think that we can look at God and we have to turn off our moral intuition. We somehow have to turn off our moral intuition. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's deeply problematic because once you turn off your moral intuition mm-hmm. in your theological reasoning, you can turn off your moral intuition in all kinds of other ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And also, um, you know, w- again, you know what is said in response to this is, well, your intuition is sinful. Okay, well, then where do I turn? You turn to your theology. Okay, so isn't that a product of my own subjectivity and sinfulness? Don't I misunderstand things in the Bible? You know, the Calvinists call, talk about the noetic effects of sin, the effect of sin on our thinking, right? But that only holds, apparently, for people who are outside of the Christian faith, not for people within the Christian faith, because we have the Bible to stand on. But the Bible has to be interpreted by people, and they have to engage it as people who don't even speak the language the stuff's written in. Right, so I I find that very very problematic for me to to think along those lines, and um, yeah, I agree with you. Well, in modern Christianity, a Christian universalist theology is viewed with is often viewed with suspicion, and even branded as a heresy in many fundamentalist and conservative expressions of the Christian faith. What would you say to those who are concerned that a Christian universalist approach is, approach is heretical? And what encouragement could you give to those of us who identify as Christian universalists or believers in ultimate redemption, as Brad Jerzak prefers, or mm-hmm. who would like to call it apocatastasis, as Brian Zahn likes to call it? Right, right. What would you? What encouragement would you give? I, I think just the reminder that this is old. This is not a new thing that's just popping up. And it wasn't heretical in the ancient church. It just sort of lost favor for whatever reason, especially beginning with the Protestant Reformation. Um, so just take heart in that fact that, you know, it's, it might be a new way of thinking culturally for us today, but it's not a new way of thinking in Christianity. And there have been debates about it, right? And those debates aren't going to cease anytime soon. So when people disagree with you on that, just realize that's also part of the world of theological thinking. It's the part of the life of faith where people of faith will disagree on certain kinds of things. But you're not alone, and you're not novel, and you're not just listening to you know tickling itching ears kind of thing or wolves in sheep's clothing, which is utter nonsense. It's part of an informed biblical discussion because there are passages in the Bible that you know people talk about the Romans five being one of them um, that expresses something that people have interpreted as. I think God's interested more than just in us and and people being part of our system. And I think the book of Jonah is very much a part of that. The Assyrians can be can repent, right? And be a part of the people of God and not be become Israelite, but remain Assyrian and have some acknowledgement of God. And I think people can do that too. They have acknowledgement of God. I know many people who have left Christianity who are still spiritual people seeking for something that makes sense. And I I thoroughly believe that they are on the path they need to be on. And they you know they left the beach blanket. They 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 left and they're now sort of in the hot sands as some people would interpret it. But that's where their journey has to take them. And I think that God respects us when we act with integrity. So if people are need some encouragement, I, I, I do like to think that God is more interested in our 
true authenticity and integrity than simply playing a game just to stay in the safe place when our whole lives are motivated by fear. Is that what God wants or does perfect love cast out fear? Are we supposed to be afraid of all this and like, what if I make the wrong move? Pal, you are making the, we're all making the wrong move when it comes to ultimately understanding God. So just, just rest in that, I think, that God is bigger than our little puny conceptions. Uh, and, and where I live, it's mostly an evangelical uh, setting in the Bible Belt. And and so I'm when people talk about Christian universalism, sometimes the response is, well, that was uh, that, you know, the church decided that that was a heresy and it was out of bounds mm-hmm. in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And my response is, well, I can understand you saying that if maybe you were Orthodox or something mm-hmm. like that, and you were felt bound to the church councils. But if you're a Protestant, you know, you're not supposed to be that concerned about uh, <laughs> what an ancient church council right. said. You know, that's sort of part of being Protestant. And if you were to take that path, well, then you would be a heretic based upon some, you were excommunicated at a certain right. point and called right. a heretic too. And then when you look back in church history, that fifth ecumenical council, really all it did was put origin on a list of heretics and then not even say directly what it was for. Mm-hmm. And there were some imperial anathemas that were passed prior to the um, to that council, but th- those seem to do have to do more with originism than whatever when whatever origin taught. Mm-hmm. But um, what I like to tell to say to people is that well, you know, the church history is a it's a long complex story. If you're concerned about official church councils for whatever reason, yes, origin was put on a list of heretics at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. And uh, there's a big discussion about why that happened, what led up to it. Uh, but also at the Seventh General Council, Gregory of Nyssa was named Father of the Fathers, and he clearly mm-hmm. uh, right. uh, advocated a universal restoration, understood that, and was very clear about that. And he uh, was named Father of the Fathers and helped participate in writing the formulation of the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. So um, in the in the formative period of the early church, um, people who were universalists were not considered non-Christians or heretics. Matter of fact, they Absolutely. were part of they were part of putting together the core understanding of the Christian faith that we now have uh, mm-hmm. today. So, and there was room for universalism in that in that, in that sense, mm-hmm. even if others disagreed with that. It's not the basis for being eliminated from the Christian tradition. Well, in your book, you directly address the topic of death, and you know it's a difficult topic, and it's an existential one that gets us all thinking. And you managed even to incorporate the phenomenon of mystical experience around death, including near-death experiences. And this part of your book reminded me of the work of another scholar we've both interviewed and appreciate, Dale Allison. About Allison, you write, in three separate books, Allison has reflected on death, afterlife, apparitions, and other parapsychological experiences. One cannot read Allison on any topic and not be impressed with the depth of his research and grasp of the material, including the history of scholarship on death and the afterlife. But he also speaks from personal experiences over which he has ruminated for decades. So just as we're closing up here, could you elaborate for us a little more on death, Dale Allison, and what you make of all of the mystical experiences which surround death? I mean, what I learned from Dale is uh, how robust and ancient this discussion is over what happens to you after you die and, and evidence for things beyond um, you know the, the the death of our bodies. And that alone was something that made me think differently about the nature of death. I mean, I've always been thinking about it and I always sort of sense that it's it's a we're, we're in the realm of mystery here. But there are enough documented cases that I think are very interesting and odd, and Dale talks about some of them. And Caleb Wilde, who um, has a very popular podcast and um, and social media presence. Uh, actually, I don't think he has a podcast, but he has a big social media presence because he is an ex-funeral director, and he's seen a lot of things himself. And um, you know, I don't want to baptize these things into Christian language. I just want to sort of appreciate what those experiences are that people have had. Out-of-body consciousness, 
uh, people in comas seeing things down the hallway or outside that they sh- that are there that they should not be able to see because they're sitting there, but they're floating or moving. And and um, I know people who I trust deeply, family members who have had experiences like this. I haven't, but I I, I want to take that seriously and fold that into my understanding of the nature of the God of the Christian faith. And the thing that really, uh, the curveball for me in the book was these experiences happen to people regardless of their religious affiliation or when they were born or where, um, what their race is, gender, whatever. None of that makes difference. It seems it makes a difference. It seems to be a pretty, a common human experience that's been documented for since the Greek era. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I've I've tried to say that I think I can justify my approach from an uh, an appeal to scripture and an appeal to tradition, church history, logic. Um, but there's also an openness now to, for people to share about mystical experiences, which also convinced me that there you might say there is a wideness in God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Right, or, or mercy understood as the love of God, which others have helped me understand. It's not mercy like I will now have pity on you. It's just it's an all-encompassing posture of compassion and love towards everything. And I hope that's true. And I believe that it is. Well, Pete, there's a lot of people who are rethinking things right now with regard to their faith. And your Bible for Normal People podcast is playing a big role for lots of people going through some type of deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, For some people going through deconstruction, the possibility of a Christian universalism where grace saves all allows them to remain Christian. And I want to thank you for you being willing to address the possibility of being Christian and believing God will ultimately save all as a legitimate form of Christianity. A lot of us really appreciate um, you sharing your reflections about your curveball journey uh, to a better vision of God. I just wish you and Jared well as you continue to produce the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I appreciate that, David, very much. Thanks for your kind words, and it was great to be on. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.